because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. It's been a few weeks since I've been on the show, so it's good to be back. And I am back with Don and Stefan. Hey, guys. Hey, Alex. Hey, Alex. So, first story from Don, which we'll probably talk a lot about, is the climate change town hall, which I think was, from what I saw and have read, was uh, very scary. And I think it's, I've heard from people in industry that it's it started to wake people up uh, when, especially when they hear themselves threatened. So I think it'll be good to, to talk about what happened and then to talk about what can be done about it. So Don, uh, tell us your perspective. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, so last week, it's a seven hour town hall that CNN hosted on climate and each of the candidates got to discuss their positions and answer various questions. So I'll just start out with a few highlights and then we can delve in from there. So about half of the candidates embraced a carbon tax, including Elizabeth Warren, Biden, Harris, and Buttigieg. And I mean, this was interesting in that um, either none or very few of these candidates had actually included this as part of their plans before, which, you know, generally are some version of being 100% renewable, relying on solar and wind and outlawing various kinds of uh, various uses of fossil fuels. But uh, carbon tax reemerged as a big focus. We had Andrew Yang discussing the need to force people to drive electric vehicles in the coming decade. So outlawing internal combustion vehicles. Kamala Harris, uh, I'm sorry, I mispronounced that. Uh, Actually, I don't know how to pronounce that. I think think it's, it's Kamala. Kamala Harris. Uh, She wants to ban plastic straws, end fracking and offshore drilling, and is advocating getting rid of the filibuster to pass the Green New Deal. So it's passing it with a controversial piece of legislation with much less support than, uh, you know, you would have for most pieces of legislation that have to be passed. What do you mean get rid of the filibuster? You mean as as a tool in general? Yeah, so that is the Senate would operate on the principle of, you know, if, if you can get 51% of the votes, then that's all you need. Whereas today, if you don't have 60 votes, then it's possible for the minority party to stop you from passing something. Got it. Elizabeth Warren, now just before the town hall, she came out with her climate plan, which was, which was basically Jay Inslee's plan. He's the governor of Washington who recently dropped out of the presidential uh, campaign, but Warren explicitly credited him and then went on to embrace his plan. Uh, but I think the the biggest news of her is that she came out strongly in opposition to nuclear. And, you know, she acknowledged that it's this, you know, the context is, you know, she's been saying that we have to, we have 12 years to solve climate, that it's an existential threat. And then somebody asks her about nuclear and she says, yeah, well, it's not carbon based, but there's risks associated with it, like what are we going to do with the spent fuel rods? And so her view is that we shouldn't build any new nuclear plants and that we're going to, in her words, start weaning ourselves off of nuclear energy and replacing it with renewable fuels over, and she corrects herself, we're going to get it all done by 2035. But I hope it's going to be faster than that. That's the plan, she says. Uh, and Bernie Sanders 
made headlines for treating uh, abortion as a means to dealing with population control as a means of protecting ourselves with climate. And so the overall tenor of it was there was no real assessment of how big a risk is this, how important are our different uh, al- energy alternatives, and you know what is our ability to mitigate climate. There's, it was overall just competing to have the most radical restrictions on fossil fuels on the biggest timeline. In fact, many of uh, several of the questions from audience members were basically saying, aren't you embarrassed that you're only spending a trillion dollars, unlike Sanders, who's spending 16 trillion dollars? Like it was the, like the mark of seriousness was how much you wanted to take over the economy, how quickly you wanted to outlaw fossil fuels, and how unconcerned you were with the cost of your plan. So I found this really chilling. And the most shocking thing is there wasn't a single voice who tried to inject uh, an ounce of reason into it, including the audience members or the people, the, the CNN moderators. Uh, I, I want to talk about some of the questions that were asked, Alex, but uh, why don't I stop there and you can share your reactions so far. Yeah, I mean, one one thing that you want in a, in a society and kind of any context you're talking about policy is just some acknowledgement of trade-offs for different kinds of decisions. And and one time you often you, you run into problems if somebody just thinks, oh, there's some magical thing that we're not doing and that, that free people haven't done, but that I, the government, I'm going to do, and it's just going to have all of these amazing positive consequences and, and no negatives. And here, there's just, there's no cost or difficulty ascribed to replacing fossil fuels. So you take it as Elizabeth Warren, um, she's going to get us off nuclear and fossil fuels by 2035. So 16 years from now. And I mean, if you were just going to replace the existing capacity of fossil fuels, like for some reason you said, well, the way we're doing it now is hard. And, but, and the nuclear plants and stuff, but even if you're just going to rebuild America's nuclear plants and, and all its fossil fuel generation, I don't think anyone would, would anyone really think a, a, the government's going to be able to do that in terms of just rebuilding all of these power plants that we know how to build and that we've already built. So in general, just it's real, it takes a while to do these things. It's hard to do them efficiently. And it's certainly hard for, uh, to say at least it's hard for the government to do it. And yet they're talking about technologies that don't work at all. So when they talk about renewable fuels, they're talking about unreliables in terms of solar and wind. And there's we've talked about it many times on the show, but there's no county, city, state, country, et cetera, that's run by these at all because they're unreliable and they need constant backup slash life support from reliables. So it's it's and it does doesn't even work at any price, let alone at prices that are are humane and consistent with our economy and consistent with our aspirations for progress. So the words like insane, delusional, this is, I mean, those are almost mild for what you're talking about because someone's talking about something that is impossible, that's known to be impossible in terms of getting unreliables to, 
I mean, impossible with anything resembling current technology and methods. So it's it's an impossible thing that they're promising to do, like of a of an enormous scale that they're promising to do in 16 years. So there's the delusion there, and and but then there's also just the non-awareness that hey, if I if I get this wrong or when I get this wrong, that's going to undercut the whole economy since the whole economy is, you know, I mean, this is to simplify it slightly, but it's it's human beings amplified a hundredfold by a whole bunch of machines that are powered by a continuous supply of affordable, reliable, versatile fuel. And there's just no, no, so the, I mean, in, in a sense, the fossil fuel industry and everyone else have done basically, have done very little to explain to the world what an achievement it is to get cheap, reliable, versatile, scalable energy. There's just no understanding of how important this is and how difficult it is to do and how much better fossil fuels have been and are than the alternatives. So people see no, they see our use of fossil fuels as a failure and as sometimes they'll call it an addiction. So they think, oh, there's no problem getting rid of this. So they, they ascribe no no downside to abolishing fossil fuels and no difficulty to doing it versus it's the downside is homicidal and the difficulty is infinite in terms of what they're, uh, they're talking about. One other thing that I've been thinking about recently with you hear these numbers about, oh, it's a $16 trillion climate plan. And why aren't you willing to spend $16 trillion? One perspective on that is, okay, whose money is that $16 trillion? Like if it's, okay, I'm somebody saving up for a house. And if it's a significant chunk of that, they're probably not too happy. So people don't ascribe this money as coming from individuals. That's one thing. But the other thing is, it's important that the value of money is determined by the production that backs it. So if you take like what happens in an inflationary economy, like with something like the currency of Venezuela, well, the idea is whatever amount of money, I mean, one thing is they print more of it, but also there's less production backing it. So you can just imagine we have all of our dollars in circulation and our productivity goes in half. Well, then those dollars are going to be worth a lot less. And so when you talk about spending money on abolishing fossil fuels, you're talking about destroying the root of our production. And then that makes our money a lot less valuable. So when they when Bernie Sanders talks about $16 trillion, he's talking about 16 trillion fossil fueled dollars. But if you're if you're talking about $16 trillion to destroy fossil fuels, then it's I mean, then it's an infinite cost, because then you're just destroying the whole economy. So I think it's it's there are pro- a lot of problems when we just ascribe these dollar figures to things to act like yeah well that's a lot but you know let's let's be courageous and do it versus no in reality this means this means kind of blackout nation and and the whole just catastrophe that that goes with that one let's see other other thoughts on this I mean, one is that if the Green New Deal and that popularity wasn't enough, hopefully this is enough to wake people up in the industry that this is a that there's really a war in this election over energy. And it's it's very, very it's very significant and the timing is very significant because 
I've talked about on the show before. There is no way, fortunately, that the whole world is going to destroy itself to reduce CO2 emissions. I just think it's incredibly unlikely, particularly the developing world will. But there's a much, much higher likelihood that wealthy and insanely ignorant people driven by a nature-worshipping environmental crusade, and so that would be the West right now, including the U.S., it's, it's quite possible that we could make catastrophic decisions that would undercut our economy and way of life and that would that would have decades of consequences. I mean, just even look at the, not the same motivation, but the 70s, you had an energy crisis that was really terrible for a lot of people. And this is, that was, an, that was not a deliberate energy crisis. I mean, they, there are bad government policies that caused it, but they weren't trying to restrict energy. In the late 70s, Demo, you know, the Democrats, the Democrats in 1979, uh, before that election, I mean, they're talking about coal and nuclear and basically how to how to replace oil, how to do all the great things oil does without oil because they're worried about running out of oil or losing access to oil. And now it's now it's happened is 40 years later. Uh, all the dreams have been achieved past anyone's wild expectations in terms of our ability to produce oil and gas in the United States, as well as to produce coal. And the world is so much more prosperous. Our ability to produce energy, our, our capabilities as human beings, our safety from our environment, all of these things are way up. And yet everyone is condemning the root of the achievement, which is the fossil fuel uh, industry. So th that's, that's somewhat of a, a digression, but the basic idea is it's we're at a point where we, our government could make just, we could, you know, in one election, if you have, I mean, if you have, I don't mean to be partisan about this because I'm not a big Republican, but you have with Democrat House, Democrat Senate, Democrat White House, you could really like, cripple uh, this country in a way that would be, hard to recover from and would be you know, terrible for things like our security. Uh, and, and so you, you have, you have people who are just insanely detached from reality who are, who are willing to do this and a public that is not at all, that might be suspicious of this, but it is not at all sure. So what, what is necessary is a just, this is the time to put resources into it, but as know, a, a massive fighting back against this. And we could talk about, and we're happy to talk to individual companies if you're interested in, in the specifics of how to do this. But the, the key is it has to be a very deliberate fight back, as in this movement has to be countered in a very aggressive way that makes clear to people that it is not going to make our country and our environment better it's it's they have policies that are really homicidal for for human beings so that that needs to be that kind of posture it, that kind of recognition it can't be oh just hey let's let's send out a friendly message about x and uh x and y and you know, oh here's how oil helps you in in this one way that's that's part of it but you have to recognize that you're you're at war in the sense of uh, 
not the survival of the country, the survival of the industry, certainly. And I think it was a wake up call that some of the in some of these discussions, the executives are being called out and they're talking about prosecution. And this is yeah, the, these insane people are in the course in, in their willingness to destroy our economy and our productivity. Yeah, they're also willing to vilify you for contributing to that productivity. So definitely a wake-up call, and I, I myself found it quite motivating. So, yeah, I know, Don, you had had some of the, uh, the specific questions, so let's talk about those. Although, let me ask, uh, Stefan, is there anything you wanted to to chime in with? Yeah, so uh, I found it also quite revealing. So um, these candidates actually had to talk in somewhat greater depth to it. And we talked in a previous episode about this green utopia that they are promising and I uh, one of the discussions that uh, went on on social media among the uh, not even the skeptics but the lukewarmers on on the climate issue was uh, how out of whack the actual plans of the candidates are with their goals so the goals are so radical that even these crazy like 16 trillion uh, Bernie Sanders types plans will not achieve it so it's they are truly promising something impossible um, and even the economic acrobatics that they are doing with their quote-unquote investments of trillions of dollars are not going to achieve that. So it's it's truly dishonest and truly promising a utopia. Got it. All right, Don, what were some of the, the questions? Well, one that I thought would be worth starting with, given all the points that you made is, so one of the candidates, Bernie Sanders, was actually asked this question about, well, wait, what are the costs for the individual going to be? And his answer was, well, like, look, you know, there's some people who like internal combustion cars and we'll have to talk about that, which really means we're going to have to ban it and they're going to have to shut up and accept it. And then he mentioned, well, there's going to be, you know, non-LED light bulbs. And then he threw out the end of factory farming, which seemed pretty big. Um, But that was like, that was it. Like there was no confronting any of the things that you mentioned, though I was... You know, this was a question from CNN, not even one of the audience members, though it was good that at least somebody thought to ask about, you know, hey, isn't this going to have some negative impact on people? Any any reactions to Sanders? Yeah, well, I think in terms of, so if we talk about it strategically in terms of what are the points people need to get, I'd say two points that we talk about are, one is that the energy industry is the industry that powers every other industry. And the related point that the more expensive energy is, the more expensive everything is. And then the cheaper energy is, the cheaper everything is. And so one thing is showing and and saying this is going to drive up the cost. I mean, this is even too minimal, but this is going to drive up the cost of everything. And having ads showing prices going up, like Walmart had those falling prices ads, and you want rising prices, like people will think of rising prices at the gas station. But no, this is this is rising prices everywhere in every aspect of life. So yeah, life becoming progressively unaffordable. So that's, that's of, of, I mean, Sanders is is horrible in, in so many ways, and and just the 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 throwaway of the factory farming is is a perfect 
uh, example is what is factory farming? I think is ill-defined, but really it means modern farming. I mean, it means fa factory really means machine. So machine-driven farming, he should read chapter three of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, where I talk about how the oil industry solved world hunger and how machine farming is crucial. And it does things like allow one person running a harvester to reap enough wheat for 500,000 loaves of bread a day. And it allows a very small percentage of the population to produce enough food for the whole population versus in the past, even having 90% of people in food production would lead to periodic starvation or near starvation because nature doesn't give us abundant food. We need to figure out how to produce it. And with our own like limited energy and tools by ourselves, we can't do it. So we need to design machines uh, to do it for us and produce a whole bunch of energy really efficiently so that we can afford to have them do our farming for us. And then that's the whole just factory farming, that's the foundation of everything. Because without factory farming, not only do we not have secure food supply, but we don't have all of these other industries. So factory farming has made it possible to free up human time to spend, to improve life in all of these other respects. It, it allows us to figure out how to produce uh, medicine effectively and allows people to spend all their time being doctors and figuring out how to fight these uh, different diseases and then figuring out higher level things like how to refrigerate our food and even how to let, let alone how to produce better food and this is this is somebody who is only alive bernie sanders because of quote unquote factory farming so just as a throwaway oh yeah let's let's destroy that i mean it might as well just say yeah let's destroy farming uh, two more that I want to throw out there. So this one was directed at uh, Vice President Biden. Older generations have continued to fail our generation. This was asked by a person who looked to be in their, their teens. Uh, older generations have continued to fail our generation by repeatedly choosing money and power over our lives and our futures. So how can we trust you to put us, the future, over the wants of large corporations and wealthy individuals? Um, this just brought to mind for me one of my favorite sections of the moral case for fossil fuels where you talk about you know what it actually like what actually benefits future generations and uh and the you know the whole premise here that what has happened over the last you know 30 to say nothing of 100 years has been you know making her generation poorer or worse off uh that is such a widespread view and yet I think it's the complete opposite of the truth. Yeah, I really like a set of graphs that are in chapter three of the moral case for fossil fuels, although in the new version, they'll be more central, which I, I'll sometimes call the human flourishing hockey sticks. And so what it shows you is basically life expectancy is flat below 30 for thousands of years. And then it dramatically starts accelerating and goes way up in the last 200 years. And you see the same thing for income per person. And you see the same thing for population, which means that, so those three combined mean that the earth can now support, quote unquote, the earth can support, or, or we can support uh, far more people and now living far longer lives and uh, having far more resources, which means far more uh, opportunities at our disposal. And it's no coincidence that you have a similar hockey stick with the use of fossil fuels that correlates 
really, really strongly with it. So one thing is that fossil fuels uh, drives this because it it provides a uniquely cheap, reliable, versatile, scalable source of energy, and it's continued to do that better and better for 200 years. And then, as, as I talked about before, that then makes us more productive, uh, particularly in our ability to produce food. And then that's that's allowed this just ever-expanding set of industries that enhance our lives in all sorts of um of different ways. And it, it frees up all kinds of time for us to continue to think about how to produce energy better and how to do everything else better. And so what we have is this unprecedented period of human flourishing, but it's not just a fixed level of human flourishing. It's an, it's an ever increasing level of human flourishing, or hu- you could think of it as human capability. And so if you look at the human flourishing hockey sticks, the thing you should think about is okay, wow, we are at an amazing time in history, a really unprecedented time. We should really understand what good things made this possible, and we should really be focused on continuing it because I am really, I am really, really grateful to whatever they did in 1900 to keep that uh, continuing because, you know, if, if it hadn't been there, I would have had a pretty good chance of dying uh, from something be if if that prog- if we were at 1900s levels let alone 1800s levels and so this whole perspective of oh the other yeah, past we've been failed like what does that mean when you have more opportunity than any human being has had in history and where just as an average person you have more opportunity than a king had a couple hundred years ago so there's again this point that nobody has explained what an achievement our use of fossil fuels has been, and more broadly, what an achievement our industrial civilization has been and is. And so it allows them to look out of context and say, hey, I, I, I hear there are these side effects on our climate. That sounds really bad. And yeah, so you failed us. You owed us a, you owed us everything that we have now that we take for granted, and you owed us an unchanged climate. And how dare you do that? And the money, the motivation must be money. Uh, well, in a sense, yeah, the motivation was money. If by if by that you mean profit, because what does it mean to profit? To profit means to take in more than you put out, which means that you produce that a given process produces more than it consumes, and that is how you become productive. That means creating value. So yeah, people are using money to measure their activities so that they continually create value. And that is what allow, that is why we use fossil fuels, because fossil fuels are value-creating uh, energy production versus if you build a whole bunch of solar panels and wind turbines and batteries and you try to jerry-rig them together, and of course you're using all this fossil fuel to, to make it possible, that's a destructive form of energy production because the resources that it costs to do that are worth more than the energy that you get out. So it is, yeah, people have been pursuing money in the noblest sense to create more and more value. And then they invest the value they create to create more value. Then they invest that to create more value. And so what we have is this escalation of value creation that young people today are completely, or at least many are completely ignorant of and therefore ungrateful for, but it's the fault of education and certainly the educational system, the media, but there is a responsibility on industry's part because it's under attack and it's it's that value to really, I would say, propagandize in the sense with that kind of zeal 
about this is the value that we have created. This is the value that we do create. This is how crucial it is. Uh, you know, without us, life would, they talk about a climate emergency. Without us, life would be a perpetual climate emergency. That's not, not just it would be, that's what it was. Life was a climate emergency for thousands and thousands of years because you depended on the climate to be favorable so that you could have uh, enough food. If it wasn't, then you would be competing with other humans for food and there would be a lot of starvation and a lot of, of conflict. And then the just the elements were often overwhelming. So you needed you needed to protect yourself from them, but you really couldn't because your ability to produce clothing and shelter was uh, was was pretty limited. And so yeah, life was a climate emergency. And if we if we stop fueling the machines of our civilization, life becomes a climate emergency and, and every kind of emergency again. One point that's important about energy is you, you don't it's not like you figure out how to produce energy and then some, some that knowledge by itself sustains you. You need to produce energy every second of every day uh, at, at a certain level. Otherwise, the whole machine labor civilization fails to work, and then we are seven and a half billion people without machines living in nature. And nature was a climate emergency when there were 200 million humans who were trained to deal with the natural environment. We are seven and a half billion human beings who are completely untrained to deal with the natural environment. So if you if you just want to talk about emergency, emergency is a modern human population with modern knowledge without modern energy. All right, one last one. Uh, this was directed at Elizabeth Warren, and I thought this was a, a great question. I'm glad somebody asked it. Said, well, look at Germany, and you know, with all their ambitions and it seems that they're going to fall short of their goals presumably this means their their uh, co2 reduction goals one of the problems they have is balancing types of power when it's bright and sunny they generate so much wind and solar that it can flood the market and put wholesale prices at almost zero and when it's dark in the winter time they need power and they use nuclear power and have to look for other sources can the ambition meet the reality of phasing out fossil fuels and not using something like nuclear, at least in the short term? And Warren's answer was that uh, she's going to bet on science and put a lot of money in research and development. So basically, it's she's going to put our money and our life on the hope that somebody will be able to invent a solution to the problem that she's causing by banning all of our energy. That's... That's really interesting. Let me just ask Stefan. So, Stefan, did the energy transition in Germany, did that start in 2000 or when did it officially start? Yeah, so the legislation favoring solar and wind in particular or renewables in general started uh, in 2000. Okay, so that's that's 19 years ago. And Warren is saying that she's going to do everything in 16 years from now and she says i'm going to bet on science but did the germans not bet on science uh so they've they're producing well under i forget the exact stats but they're producing well under 10 percent of their total energy from solar and wind and their energy has become way more uh expensive and this questioner talks about nuclear but i think it's mostly coal that they're quote looking for when in the in the winter time so they're they're using 
a, a huge amount of coal. So, but what happens, what happens if you're, and what does it mean for a politician to bet? So that's our lives. As, as I mentioned just, just a minute ago, like a modern, you know, a modern population level with a, mo- uh, with modern machines and modern knowledge, uh, without modern energy is, is a catastrophe. So what does it mean to make a bet that is deadly for people? Like, do you want politicians betting? I don't, I don't like like that that language is crazy, and then the the giveaway or one giveaway is just this idea of science. That because the the way they think of it is that uh, the way that progress is made is just somebody discovers something in a lab, and then everyone's life uh, is changed. Whereas what happens is there are a million things that are discovered or identified in labs. And most of them, people have no idea how to make valuable use of. And then occasionally, there's something that people can make valuable use of. And then after decades and decades of millions of people uh, applying it and using it in different ways, then they can build a whole industry. So you think about, say, um, with the, with oil, this is this is what happened. People discovered how to refine it in a certain way, and they discovered that it existed in certain places. And then over time, millions of people figured out how to take this material and then produce it uh, in a way that was very profitable because you could you could get so much value from using it, and you could you could produce it in a way where you could charge a lot less than it, than the value that it 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 gave people. But this is this is a this is an economic process of of value creation. It's not where scientific discovery is one uh, one part of it, and it's it's sometimes an essential part of it. But the scientific discovery is just one uh, tiny part. But it's it's scientists themselves have no you know. Th- there's nothing anyone's going to discover that's going to be oh yeah now. We can pr- now, like instantaneously, we can produce energy for everybody at at really low prices. And also, part of the way that science works in an economy is it only works because people are free to compete and people are free to choose the good things versus the bad things. Most of the things, as I mentioned, are are complete failures commercially that don't accomplish anything. And so you have you have competition. But in this case, so part of how science works is science itself has competitive elements and then scientific discoveries compete in the market to be part of products and services. But that requires that people be free to select the ones that work or can work among the many that don't versus uh, a monopolist like Warren dictating this, dictating, oh, well, it has to be solar and wind. You have to... putting that artificial constraint on things, that's the opposite of how uh, science has any value in the market. So that, that's almost too much, too charitable to talk about all those uh, aspects because the, the main thing is she is promising something uh, impossible and then she is saying, I'm betting on it being possible in, in, in a way that reveals her Ignorance. So, I mean, th- this is somebody who were, were in a state where th- there's some real possibility this person could make these things uh, happen, and that's terrifying. But and I would say, just at the very least, we have an obligation to call this out and to to really fight it. And 
I mean, not fight it like, not fight it like complain to our significant others about it in the paper, but I mean, fight it, it publicly. And people think, oh, well, I can't say anything publicly, otherwise I'll get in trouble. Well, what is bigger trouble for you and for others than having an unopposed President Elizabeth Warren as the uh, dictator of the energy industry and therefore of the economy? Let's see, anything... All right. Do you have, uh, let's, let's, um, cause we're already through most of the, the time. I want to just, I want to do this whole thing on the debate. So Don, did you have any other questions that they, that came up? Yeah, sure. So I mean, this one, I have a soft spot for since it's about Pennsylvania, which is my state. And so this said, I live in rural Pennsylvania in the bullseye of the Marcellus shale. Currently the county I live in is home to 1600 plus permitted fracked gas wells. I have witnessed firsthand the tragic and appalling destruction of our beautiful forests in the Pennsylvania wilds. Sadly, our Democratic governor is all in for fracked gas. As president, what can you do to change the direction of the catastrophic climate change policies and future plans at the state level? And, um, you know, part of the context here is that we are getting more of the candidates coming out calling for fracking bans, which, I mean, when you think about what a role that plays in our economy, just in terms of the kind of jobs and production side, let alone, you know, the benefit of the en- uh, the, the um, energy, like there's whole economies and communities and companies built around that. And like, that's not taken seriously at all. Um, it's that, you know, there, she can see some cars and some metal in Pennsylvania in the, in the quote, Pennsylvania wilds. Yeah, so what, what do you think about that as a as a resident? Well, to be fair, I'm I don't live amongst those parts of the states, uh, but like I've you know I've spoken um, to you know one of the state associations here and have met like these people and like know the I mean this is one of the most exciting you know this is the the biggest source potential source of natural gas in the country. I mean it's an amazing. Uh, potential achievement that you know can really can benefit and has benefited uh this part of the country in terms of if you look at ohio which we we share this the shale with um you know we've had and our energy prices go down significantly um because of our access to affordable natural gas and the idea that like the only challenges, because Biden was asked this question, his view is the real challenge here is that, well, the federal government can only ban fracking on federal lands, which he wants to do. Um, and, you know, this. so the only thing that the, the, the president can do and, and that is uh, help convince state governors and legislators to commit suicide. And so, you know, I think part of what worries me is that um, I just saw a story today that uh, Ocasio-Cortez is saying now they're going to break up the Green New Deal into like little pieces and, you know, try to pass them independently. And I think that, you know, one thing that can happen is, well, we're going to kind of try to package what we're doing in less objectionable ways, or they're going to seem, you know, less arresting than if somebody literally just had a piece of legislation that said, let's put oil and gas out of business tomorrow. Um but if you isolate it to something like, well, we're going to mandate EVs and then we're going to ban fracking 
on you know uh, government lands, and then we're going to pressure this state to do it on state lands. And it, it be, if you don't have a real positive understanding of the value of fossil fuels, this stuff becomes even harder to fight. Interesting. I wonder, but I think part of the appeal of the Green New Deal, though, was that it, it seemed to have a vision for things. And sort of hearkening back to how people at least perceive the original New Deal. And so it's, oh, it's this ambitious project. I wonder what it would be like if it is something like an EV mandate, because at least in a sense, that's easier to fight because you can you can focus more resources at a given time. Uh, just you, you can you can be a little bit more specific about, OK, this would be destructive in this way. So I, I wonder I wonder about that. I mean, either way, it's it's no good. But I just want to translate this question because it's, it's you know, currently the county I live in is home to 1,600 plus permitted frack gas wells, a tragic and appalling district. So what's actually happened is, so I live in, in Pennsylvania and let's say at least hundreds of thousands of productive people have worked to produce energy that's made our entire country more productive and prosperous and secure. And I object to that because I don't think you should be able to cut down trees and all the trees apparently belong to me. So I get to decide. So it's just this dictatorial environmental perspective that recognizes none of the incredible value that natural gas production has brought to uh, people. And one thing I want to stress here that I was thinking of as you were talking is just that these, so there's the element of this is economically homicidal, or you could think of it as suicidal if you think of it as for the whole country. But I think of it as more the individual, this individual president is acting homicidally. It's like economic homicide for the country. And certainly if if these policies are passed, many people would die prematurely and, and all sorts of other suffering would happen. So I don't mean that as an exaggeration. But the other form in which this is terrifying is, and maybe even more so, is security-wise. Because we have, we are very, to say the least, we're just very fortunate in the United States to be considered the superpower because we're a relatively peaceful country and there are a whole bunch of countries with a lot of corrupt ambitions and I definitely have Russia at the top of that uh, and also China in many ways. And the one thing that we have that's this tremendous benefit is the ability to domestically produce energy. And also we can we can export energy and that can help with a whole bunch of uh, alliances and with help deal with countries that would say be pressured by Russia uh, for gas for gas access, natural gas access reasons. But this is we're in a really special position right now and and people should remember, at least be aware of in the 70s, people were really concerned in part because they perceived us as too vulnerable with energy. So this is this is just something where, if you want to talk about real emergency and real crisis, it's having hostile powers get more and more power and us be crippled and perceived as weak. And if you don't think the dictators of these countries are thinking that way, then that's that's delusional. I mean, that's what dictators are. People talk about power. That's what dictators are doing. They are, I mean, even, even these wannabe dictators in the U.S. want power uh, and with with 
because we have just way too much power available to people in government compared to what we used to. But in these other countries, it's they have dictatorial power and they're seeking dictatorial power. And part of what dictators seek is the expansion of that power. So their people are looking with, I mean, if you were, if you were uh, the dictator of another country that had aspirations against the United States, you would be just, you would just be clapping at every moment of this town hall. And it's no coincidence that a lot of people from these countries have financed in the U.S. and particularly in Canada the anti-fossil fuel movement because, yeah, they want U.S. and Canada to cripple ourselves. And again, there's just this complete obliviousness and all these guys can say about security is, yeah, well, if we if we destroy fossil fuels, then the weather will be fine and then that will dodge that bullet because bad weather slash climate change is really this issue with security, not Russia and China escalating in power. So just another kind of urgent thing. The other urgent thing that struck me when I was following some of the coverage and this also the industry has some blame for, is the treatment of coal, and particularly coal-powered electricity. Because I think, as we've discussed at least a little bit on this show, this is, there's, what's been happening to our electricity grid is really, really bad because we've just, the, the amount of reliable generation keeps going down and down. You have in Texas and New York, just different places where we're seeing that you're having blackouts or brownouts or, or local blackouts to sometimes black out their industrial customers and don't talk about it. But you're just having more and more of a precarious electricity supply. And a lot of this is because there's been this opposition to coal, and then they're trying to replace it with a combination of natural gas and then solar and wind. And I think the natural gas slash oil people have been way too enthusiastic about, oh yeah, well, it's totally fine to shut down all this coal. No, we are, at least the way we've been doing it, we are really wrecking our grid. And that is, if you want to talk about one thing that our economy and security depends on, it's that grid. I mean, the, the electric grid is is for most purposes, besides automobile transportation and, and other kinds of portable power. I mean, that is how we get energy. So that is the thing that is standing between us and life in harmony with nature, which means death. So the just the electric grid, that is that is the heart or one of the hearts of our whole amazing way of life. And just to say, oh yeah, well let's just shut down the rest of the we've shut down some coal plants. Let's shut down the rest of them. Oh yeah, let's shut down the nuclear plants too. Just there's not this alarm that we are destroying like we've been wrecking our grid. We've been taking this, you know, our ability to produce electricity and it keeps downgrading and it's it's getting less and less reliable. We're on this trajectory and there's no recognition of that. And this is in part something the industry needs to sound, anyone who knows needs to sound the alarm about this. Because if, if you actually told the truth about what's been happening in the world, you tell the truth about how, the electric grid has been declining, how these green energy policies have led to declines in grids as well as higher prices, how these green energy policies have failed, how fossil fuel development has led to 
a lot more prosperity and security in America. If, if, if people would tell these stories aggressively and stand up for them, then this climate town hall and couldn't exist, as well as telling, hey, we are safer from climate uh, than ever. We haven't taken a safe climate and made it dangerous. We've ta- taken a dangerous climate and made it safe. All these things that are supposedly not okay to talk about, yeah, when you don't talk about them, then people believe in the extinction narrative for fossil fuels. That, oh, if that fossil fuels are causing a catastrophe and renewables are going to save us. And so this, again, I, from the perspective, if we're talking about, because we have a lot of industry listeners to this show, from, from the perspective of industry, but more broadly, anybody who knows better, it's this, is, this needs to be fought aggressively. That, that needs to be the posture. It can't just be, oh, I don't want to say, I get this sometimes, I don't want to say anything bad about renewables. Okay, well, then then everyone is going to be ignorant. Then everyone will think renewables are just as good as fossil fuels, except better because they don't have all the side effects. If, if, you, if you say, I don't want to attack renewables, then you say, I don't want to inform people about energy. That's like if, if I'm in the steel industry and people are saying replace steel with wood, and I say, well, I don't want to attack wood. Well, then you're going to keep people ignorant about steel. And if you believe vaccines are good, but you don't want to say vaccines are better than non-vaccines, then you're not telling people that vaccines are good. So to say something is valuable means that it is, for many purposes, the best thing for human life and that other alternatives are not nearly as good for human life for those purposes. All right, Don, pick one more and then we will wrap up. Uh, Yeah, sure. So this one was uh interesting uh one of the people asked bernie sanders has endorsed the idea of public ownership of utilities arguing that we can't adequately solve the crisis without removing the profit motive from the distribution of essential needs like energy as president and this was directed at warren would you be willing to call out capitalism in this way and advocate for the public ownership of utilities and what'd she say well, I mean, she kind of gave a kind of hemming and hawing answer that was, well, you know, I'm not sure that gets you to this, the solution. Uh, I, it, it was very defensive saying like, look, I'm, I'm willing to take on giant corporations, um, but, you know, that's not really necessary. So there was, there was certainly no principled approach that said, you know, hey, you know, there's been experiments with government taking over all of the uh, industries that were regarded as essential to human beings and that starved and obliterated tens of millions of uh, human beings. Um, Nor was there even contending with the legitimate thing that utilities are essentially government run in many ways, depending on the state that you're looking at. Um, So it was the, the, the underlying takeaway is that even though not everybody's willing to agree with Sanders, they view him as in a certain way having the high ground and they have to apologetically explain why they're not for completely nationalizing parts of our energy system. Yeah, so I, I just go back to the idea that profit, like what we absolutely need are profitable energy companies. That is energy companies that can take in a certain amount of resources and per, or a certain amount of value and produce more value in the form of energy. That's what we need. That's how we survive. That's how we grow is by by pursuing profit 
by creating value. So it's it's accurate to think that yeah, if the government does this, it won't create value. But if if we want energy that's cheap and reliable and and versatile and scalable, that we want to maintain what exists today, which is hard enough, but to expand it, that is yeah, we what we want is more and more we we want people who are really successful at doing that profitably in the same way I'm we're recording this on a Tuesday and it's we're probably in the middle of the Apple announcement so Apple is one of the most profitable if not the most profitable companies in the world do we want Apple to be unprofitable or what if Elizabeth Warren took over Apple and I think of that when I hear these claims about energy. People say, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this with energy." I'm gonna, they're claiming if if the government, if if Elizabeth Warren said, "Hey, I'm gonna lead in the next four years. I'm going to lead a government effort, and I'll spend five trillion dollars. So five times the market cap of Apple. I'll spend five trillion dollars, and we'll make a better, we'll make a phone that's twice as good as the iPhone." I don't think anyone thinks that would happen. Because you recognize, well, it's really hard to do that. And if you have the government do that, it's not going to work. But they're claiming to, but making something a couple times better than the iPhone, that's at least theoretically possible. They're claiming to do something that's impossible in terms of getting unreliables to power a modern economy uh, in an affordable, reliable way. They're just, that's, and yet they're, they're claiming to do it if only we give them, if only we give them basically totalitarian power over our lives. And part of what can happen if we fight back and we educate people about what an achievement our fossil fuel lives are and what a failure these green uh, technologies are, particularly when they're mandated by government, then we can make it this make Elizabeth Warren and these others look like complete cranks who are hazardous to our lives, very similar to how the Lysenko, the sort of pseudo um, botanist guy in Soviet Russia who ended up starving millions and millions of people with his policies in the same way he should have been viewed as a crank. And so it's, it's a good concept, that, you know, the concept of a crank, some crazy person who's just delusional, who thinks that they have a better way of doing it than anyone else, and yet they have no capability whatsoever. So what, you, what we want to do is expose these cranks and the terrible threat that they pose, but that requires an aggressive posture of fighting back, not a not a withdrawal and complaining behind the scenes. And what else? It's a not a withdrawal and complaining behind the scenes, and not a not a kind of meager, milk toast, mild type of oh yeah, oil's nice. That's that's not what's called for right now because there there's a war on American life via a war on American energy and we need to fight back. So I will be thinking more about how to do this and happy to talk to anybody who particularly organizations who are interested in getting involved in this. So that brings us to the usual end of the show. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can, uh, or you want to inquire about speaking, or if you want to uh, inquire about any type of uh, collaboration on fighting 
on energy in this election, you can go through Don, don at industrialprogress.net. And he is kind of our go-to for all of these things. So yeah, go to Don for that. To get on our mailing list, go to alexepsteinlist.com. And I haven't done this in a while, so I forget if there is anything else that I am uh, not reminding people of. I've been posting on Twitter, by the way, so if you want to check out Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash alexepstein. The most important thing is the mailing list at alexepsteinlist.com. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this special episode on the Climate Town Hall. Hope it gets you motivated. I'm feeling motivated, so I will talk to everyone soon. Until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.